Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest is an award-winning Irish journalist, now better known as a hugely successful author, not solely for, but mainly through the best-selling Ross O'Carroll Kelly series of books. So it's a pleasure to welcome Paul Howard. And Paul... You're going back to your childhood, I see, for your first musical choice. And like a lot of people of their generation, your parents had headed to England before you were born. Yeah, they moved to England in the 60s. Um, my dad was in the Merchant Navy, so he was travelling the world um, from the time he was about 15. And I think by his mid-20s, he'd been to, you know, something like 70 or 75 countries. Um, and then they settled down and they, I suppose, like, a, you know, like all of their families, um, they all had to go away to work. You know, there was nothing, there was nothing in Ireland for them. And um, they moved to London and uh, that's where I was born. All my brothers were born there. We were born in Hackney. Um, so we were in England. I mean, I was born in 1971 and we were there until 1979. Um, so, yeah, I did. That's where that's where I spent my childhood. And happy memories of your childhood there? Yeah, I do, actually. It was very, very different to our, our Irish childhood. Um, my family always tell me that I, um, I tend to idealise my childhood, so I remember <laughs> it as this kind of Eaton Blight, Enid Blyton-type life, you know, yeah. <laughs> where we were drinking lashings of ginger beer and Hot. going on picnics and things. I'm sure it wasn't like that, but um, I really loved England. Um, it was um, it was it was a great place to grow up at that time. But my dad had this thing about uh, about Margaret Thatcher, and he said that if she won the 1979 uh, general election in Britain, that we would move to Ireland. He would go back to Ireland, and we thought it was a joke. You know, as kids, we we thought it's like you know. Now people say, you know, if Donald Trump wins wins the election this year, I'm moving to Canada. We thought it was that kind of a threat. And um, within about three weeks of Thatcher winning the election, we had we we packed up everything we owned and moved back to Ireland. And that was seventy, the summer of seventy nine, and it was everybody said Dad was mad because you know there was there wasn't any emigrant traffic going that way. It was all going the opposite direction. People were leaving Ireland. But Dad just had a sense that, um, you know, being a, a, a working class family, um, Dad was working in factories at the time. Um, he had four kids under the age of 10. Um, and, and it just had a sense that Thatcherism wasn't going to be good news for, for him and for us. So we moved back to Ireland. He wasn't wrong, a lot of people would argue. Yeah, I mean, he. I suppose, you know, Dad worked in manufacturing. So the, the factory he worked in, um, went on a three-day week, I think within about six months of, of, um, of Thatcher coming to power. So, yeah, I mean, you could say it was quite, that was quite prescient of him to, to sort of, you know, almost see the writing on the wall. Um, but I think, um, you know, we were in Luton. That's where we were living at the time. And there was quite a lot of social unrest um, that came, you know, in, in the sort of year or two years after Thatcher came to power, you know, and... I think we he always looked back and and said yeah it was it was 
the right decision. Um, but it was a big risk at the time. And we did, he didn't, I think mom and dad, had, they had a hundred pound and, uh, and that's all they owned, you know, they didn't, um, they didn't have a house or anything. And we went and lived with my grandmother for a couple of years after we moved back. So it was, it was tough, you know, it was a struggle, but it was, it was definitely the right decision. Clearly, when you mentioned the, the, the joyous memories you have, your first song comes from that childhood. Yeah, my my parents were were big into sixties music because that was you know especially my mom it was just that was the period of our life I think she just associated with with happiness because she was young and you know um, her and my dad were sort of setting off on this married journey together and the, there was always sixties music on in the house they used to listen to sixties music especially Sunday afternoons. And so I actually grew up being quite nostalgic about the 60s, even though I didn't live through them. <laughs> I just grew to love that music. And the first song I chose, it's, um, it's Puff the Magic Dragon by uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. And I love this song. It reminds me, I mean, it's a song about childhood. I know there's all these stories uh, uh, that, that it's, a, it's full of drug references and everything, but I, I don't hear any of them when I hear it, when I listen to it. It's, to me, it's a song about childhood. Um, it's a song about lost innocence and my mother used to sing it to me when I was a kid uh, and she used to make me cry. <laughs> for, <laughs> it sounds terribly cruel, but for, she, she knew it could make me cry and she would kind of sing it in the house and I'd just hear it and i just, the tears would, and even now, all these years, late, years later when I listen to that song, um, I still fill up. Um, and it's especially that line um, dragons live forever, but not so little boys. Um, it's just, you know, it just kind of, I don't know, just sort of evokes all those feelings in me, you know, about the end of childhood and the, the loss of innocence. And it's kind of like, to, you know, when you watch Toy Story or um, The Snowman, you know, it's yeah. kind of the same theme. You know, it's this this uh, little boy who has this, uh, all these adventures with this imaginary dragon. And then there comes a point in his life where, he uh, doesn't need the dragon anymore. And uh, so I just think it's one of the, uh, it's just one of the most beautiful songs um, I know. And it's just one of those ones that just transports me right back to childhood again. Well, I looked at the song, Paul, when I heard you were choosing it uh, and I looked at it on YouTube and I couldn't believe the comments section below it. It, it seems to make everybody cry. I didn't really, I wasn't an observant enough child to notice it, it, so many people uh, are emotional when they're writing about it. So clearly it's had a huge impact on a lot of people about that loss of childhood and, and how it still makes them cry. But yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it, there's that there's a line, in, you know, it, 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 I mentioned the line there about dragons live forever, but not so little boys. And then it's painted wings and giant rings make way for other toys. And it, and it, I think that's what I think that's what gets me. You know, it's that um just that sense of leaving something behind, something magical. Um, I'm a, I'm a very um, uh, I'm a very sentimental person. Um, my, the house here is just full of junk, and you know during the lockdown, uh, Mary, my wife, is just at me, at just sort of pointing things out, saying, "Do you need that? Do you need that?" She's trying to get me to declutter. I have a collection of hotel. Uh, key cards. Uh, there's probably about uh, 400 Paul. of them over the last, <laughs> that I've collected over 35 years. And so I'm quite sentimental. I'm very, very attached to things. I still have all the toys I had as a kid. And so I think this song speaks to that part of me, the hoarder, the, 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 the part of me that hoards all those happy childhood memories and just 
won't let them go. Um, so I completely understand why people fill up when they hear this song, because it just, there's something about it that just gets me every single time. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Puff the Magic Dragon, the choice of today's guest, award-winning author Paul Howard. Paul, Hannah Lee, Puff the Magic Dragon, right? Living, wasn't that the name of, was it Surika's house or Ross's, okay, or Kelly's house in Kalini? Yeah, Ross and, Ross and Surika live in a house called Hannah Lee um, by the sea <laughs> in, uh, in on the Fico Road in, in Kalini. And it's called Hannah Lee because that's, uh, that's my own little tribute to Puff the Magic Dragon. Wow, it, it only dawned on me today, uh, the link there. Ross O'Carroll Kelly obviously was hugely good to you, um, but you had a very successful journalism career before you began writing Ross O'Carroll Kelly. Did you write that book for fun or as an experiment or with the belief that it would be hugely successful? The first columns, I mean, I, I suppose I've been writing column, Ross O'Carroll Kelly columns for about two years before I ever uh, put them into a book. And I didn't take it terribly seriously. It was really just a way of um, sending up school's rugby culture because, yeah. you know, I, I worked in the, in the Sunday Tribune for, for a lot of years and um, I freelanced before that. And one of the ways you cut your teeth as a, as a freelance sports writer is you, you go and do markings for, um, you know, the Herald or the Independent or the press was around at the time as well. So I would go and cover these matches, schools, rugby matches. And I, I, I was amazed by the different aspects of it amazed me. I mean, there was the, um, the, the sort of the social aspect to it. You know, the fact that these uh, ex-rock boys, for instance, you know, who, who are men in their 50s or 60s would still go back and support the school team every time they played, you know, and huge matches, you know, a few thousand people at these uh, schools rugby games. And I, I found out how important it was one day when um, I gave the try to the wrong player <laughs> in the report. And I got called into the Independent um, and they said, um, you know, I was told by the sports editor, you know, you gave the try to the wrong kid and, and we got a solicitor's letter. And I thought, <laughs> that's very heavy, a solicitor's letter. And he just explained to me that, that, you know, this kid has been told from the time he's a, he's a child, like he's, a, you know, a baby in the, in the cot, yeah. you're going to play for your school one day. And he finally plays for a school and he scores a try and he said, and you give it to somebody else. <laughs> you know? um, so there was so much seriousness about schools rugby and I just wanted to send it up. And so I created this character called Ross O'Carroll Kelly in January 1998. And the idea was, it was a weekly column. Um, it, it was a fictional school called Castle Rock College. And it was just what, you know, how they were preparing for each match. So it was the priest was really serious. A priest called Father Fahey in this case. Yeah. And he would, you know, give them these rousing speeches. You know, it's almost like they were, you know, going off to sort of battle in the psalm or something, you know, these um, uh, rabble rousing speeches. And, and then just how serious it was, you know, the family and um, his mother hanging out with the other schools, cup mums and the sort of social dimension to that. And so it was just sort of sending that up. Yeah. And I suppose I, I, it ran for about, 10 weeks and then I wasn't going to ever bring it back again and then the following year uh, he repeated the leave insert and he he won the first year he lost and the second year he won and then I just kind of brought it back again that summer 
and it stopped being about rugby and it started to be about the Celtic Tiger. And it was sending up all of those kind of lifestyle uh, things that were happening, changes in lifestyle and changing, changes in aspirations uh, that I was seeing that were coming in with the Celtic Tiger. And, um, and it, it started to become about that then. And, um, and then it moved into the news section of the paper. And then I kind of, I've written it ever since, 20, yeah. 20 years, um, a column a week for 20 years. It was extraordinary, extraordinarily successful. But that those freelance journalism days you mentioned, they're not they're not easy. It's a competitive world for a young fella or a young girl, isn't it? Yeah, I loved it though, you know. I I'm, I have to say I really it, it was an adventure in those days because I was very young. I was about 17 at the time and you know, I was going off to Tolka Park to cover a match and um but it was great fun. And, you know, this, is the, this was the days before mobile phones as well. So you always, the, the big fear, you're getting, the, you're getting the bus, say, to Skerries to cover a, um, a school's rugby match. And you're sitting on the bus and your big fear is that you're, you're, you're not going to be able to find a phone yeah. to phone the report in afterwards. <laughs> That's your big yeah. fear. Um, but then you, you do. And then I remember being in the King's Hall once and it was about 18 or 19. I was covering a boxing match. And there was a payphone at the back of the King's Hall and I was filing copy. So I'd, I think I had eight paragraphs to do um, and I'm onto the copy taker and there's a queue um, of men behind me waiting to use the phone and they're getting really, really antsy. And they, they, were, they were loyalist crowds, you know, <laughs> they could tell. I think they could tell I was from the South without even yeah. hearing me speak, you know. And I, the next thing behind me, I was like, Who's on the phone there? He said, oh, it's a wee, it's a wee boy reporter. Because <laughs> I looked really young at the time, you know. It's a wee boy reporter. And then they started listening to my report <laughs> and they, they were critiquing it. They were shouting, Macaulay did not lose the second round. The second round was Macaulay's best round. And uh, the next thing, one of them grabbed the phone off me oh. and, uh, and started telling the copy taker <laughs> to change what I'd written in the second paragraph. <laughs> But they were great days. I mean, I really, I, I really miss sports. I still do miss sports journalism because I never really wanted to do anything else, um, bef you know, before that or after that. I mean, I, I wanted to be a sports journalist from the time I was about 11. And my whole, you know, I, I just kind of think my whole teenage years were just spent waiting for the day I left school so I could do exactly what I was doing. You know, I remember you know, teaching myself shorthand when I was about 16 um, oh. because I knew I wanted to be a sports writer and I thought I might need shorthand. Um, and then I never really wanted to stop doing it. Um, I, I finished, uh, it's about 15 or 16 years ago now, I took what I thought was going to be a two-year sabbatical from sports writing um, to write a couple of Ross O'Carroll Kelly books and, um, and I never went back. Mm. Um, and I'm sad about that because I really do miss it. Had you had you heroes? Had the eleven-year-old Paul Howard got sporting heroes? Yeah, well, Kenny Dalglish um, was was my hero as a kid, um, and and Maradona. I mean, I was just the perfect age to be a Maradona fan because that you know I, I was fifteen when the nineteen eighty six World Cup was on, so um, that's just the perfect age. And but as a kid, it was Kenny Dalglish. Like you know, that was my my dream was that I was going to become a footballer and I would get to play on the same team as Kenny Dalglish. 
and I had the I actually had it worked out like because I said to my dad as a kid you know how old how old you know would you have to be like what's the youngest you could be to play in the first division my dad said about 17 you know and I had it worked out that I when I was 17 Kenny Dalglish would be 36 <laughs> and we would probably have a season together <laughs> Yeah. Never worked out. No, a shame, a loss for both of you. But but the humour of Russell Carl Kelly and and writing humorously, that kind of brings us to our, our your second song choice, which is a very funny song. Yeah, it's um the the ballad of uh, Barry and Frida, uh, by Victoria Wood. Um, I heard this song when I was about sixteen or seventeen. Um. And it was on a program called An Audience with Victoria Wood. So, you know, the audience was made up of other kind of television uh, celebrities, Maureen Lippman and Julie Walters and people like that. And it's a song about um, a couple who've reached a point in their marriage where they're no longer sexually compatible. Uh, the fire of lust still burns in Frida, <laughs> but it doesn't burn in Barry. So she's essentially trying to seduce him and the, you know, the two protagonists exchange verses. So hers are all about the adventurous things she wants to do uh, in the bed, in the bedroom. And his are about all the jobs around the house that mm. need doing instead. It's a very, it's very English. It's very kind of saucy seaside postcard humour. Um, but I remember here seeing it on television when I was about sort of 16, 17. And I was sitting with my parents and usually, you know, if anything, any kind of saucy talk came on the television, you'd be embarrassed, like, you know, I, yeah. I embarrassed easily. Like if yeah. two people kissed on the telly, it was like, you know, there'd be a lot of <clears throat> in the room. <laughs> and this song, I mean, the lines in it, she, you know, there's a great line in it where she says, bend me over backwards on my hostess trolley. And hostess trolleys are very English, very 80s thing, actually. Um and that kind of humour, you know, it's just brilliant. But it, it was the I think it was the first time in my life where I actually felt completely helpless with laughter, that, that I might actually hurt myself laughing at this, this song. And seeing people like, you know, Maureen Lippmann and Julie Walters in the audience with tears streaming down their face, um, I think that was the first time I ever thought to myself, I'd love to make people laugh like that. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That is absolutely fabulous. The closing lines, not meekly, not weekly, beat me on the bottom with a woman's weekly. <laughs> Paul, well, I was looking at the comment section under, under that again, and one woman said she still uses the line as an exclamation of surprise, beat me on the bottom with a woman's weekly. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's such a great line, you know. It's um, uh, that that was the one that was the one I I remembered forever. But I think that was the one that finished me. And it, I think it's the it is yeah, it's the closing line it in is, the song. Yeah. that was the one that completely finished me off. It it's just brilliant, you know. Just but more. I mean, Victoria Wood was a was a genius. Yeah. She really was. Yeah, sadly went too early. Your your third musical choice, Paul Howard, concerns. A book you wrote completely different from Russell Carroll Kelly about Tara Brown. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Um, and I'm a Beatles fan because my, my dad um, was a Beatles fan and, and dad had the Sgt. Pepper album in the house when I was growing up. And it was, a you know, musically it was, um, 
you know, it was obviously, you know, brilliant. But the album itself was a was a, a fascination piece in our house because it had this, the original album had this card inside the sleeve, which had all these sort of cut out things. There was a cut out moustache and a cut out uh, set of uh, epaulettes and, you know, cut out badges and things like that. And I wasn't allowed to cut them out because this album was an heirloom in the house. So I always kind of had a sense that th- that this album was special, you know, um, and and that the Beatles were special. Um, there's there's a, there's a song on on um, on Sergeant Pepper, the, the last song, "A Day in the Life," um, which isn't the song I'm actually um, going to play uh, um, for my my Desi's disc, but "A Day in the Life" um, was always a fascinating song to me because that opening line that John Lennon wrote about, um, you know, th- this young man who blew his mind out in a car and all these people stopped to stare and were kind of asking each other, do you know who he is? Is, is you know, um, is he in the House of Lords? Um, I, I just found that scene fascinating as a kid, that particular scene that, that, that John Lennon painted. Um, and I found out later on that it was it was it was a real um, it, it was about a real car crash um, involving a, a young Irish man uh, and Guinness air called Tara Brown and I started to read a bit I, I, I read an awful lot about the Beatles I just love um, um, I love I love reading music books but I mean especially books about the Beatles and um, and I found out a little bit about his life and he just seemed to be a really fascinating character um, he was kind of a uh, he was a figure on the scene of swinging London in in the nineteen sixties. Um, he had a clothes shop on the King's Road. He, you know, he had a garage, which is a very unusual thing. He was working as an as a apprentice mechanic, which is an unusual thing for an aristocrat to do. You know, because he was they were very very wealthy. Um, but then he was on the scene, and they had a flat in London where the Beatles used to hang out. The Rolling Stones were there. Peter Sellers, Roman Polanski. Um, these were all his friends, but he died at the age of 21 and he'd done so much living in, in those 21 years. You know, he'd, you know, by the age of 21, he'd, he'd been married, divorce on the way. He had two children. Um, he had, um, a fling with, um, a transvestite, uh, which put the, the, the final nail in the coffin of his marriage. Um, you know, his friend, very good friends with Brian Jones and, uh, very good friends of Paul McCartney, and then he died in a car crash. And then it was it was like he was this sort of social butterfly that fluttered across the London scene. Um, and then, you know, what he left behind was the inspiration for this magnificent song that closes um, Sergeant Pepper, uh, A Day in the Life. Um, so I worked on a book about him. I spent about ten years researching it, and um, it was it was just such a labour of love and. Um, it's probably the thing in my my work in life that I'm proudest of, actually. The Beatles, you, you finish with a song of hope. Yeah, Here Comes the Sun. If I was on a desert island, I would want I would want Here Comes the Sun because it's it's um it's a song just so filled with optimism. And I love the origin of the song at um 1969. Um I suppose the Beatles were 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 coming to the end at that point and they, they all had a sense that this great friendship that they had, this great creative relationship um, was was running out of steam. They were all, you know, going in different directions. 
And they were finding themselves in meetings with accountants and lawyers all the time at Apple, um, just having just been given bits of paper to sign constantly. And one day George Harrison just decided, I can't go in. He just physically couldn't bring himself to go to Apple. So he went to Eric Clapton's house and he went out into the garden. It was a spring day and he took the guitar out and he wrote, uh, Here Comes the Sun. It's a song of hope. I, I think any time I've gone through anything, uh, difficult periods in my life, you know, where, um, you know, periods of grief, you know, losing people or relationship breakups or any time I felt down, this song has always been able to drag me out of a funk. The message is nothing lasts forever. You know, everything in life is only for now. Good things, bad things, you know coronavirus, you know, it's, you know, it will come to an end and that there, there is always hope. And uh, that's why I love it. And I would, I would have to have that with me. Well, it's a very appropriate way to play us out. Paul Howard, thank you very much for joining us. Continued success to you. And we leave you this evening with the Beatles and Here Comes the Sun. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.